0: We're talking about being fit. My story kind of starts with this. Um, back in 2009, my wife Rachel and I were training for the Broad Street Run. Any of you ever done the Broad Street Run? The, it's a 10-mile run down the center of Philadelphia. And so we were training for that. We ended up running the race. Um, I've run most of my life since middle school. I ran track and cross country. And so I was kind of a, a fit person. That was my thing because football wasn't. <laughs> I'm 5'6". Um, so I, uh, I I was pleased with how we ran that day. We, we, we got pretty good times. We're, we're happy with it. And a couple of days after we ran this race, I started feeling this pretty extreme stabbing pain in my back, right leg that, um, would not go away regardless of the kind of position that I got in. It always hurt. And so Um, I was on a summer mission at the time right after we did this, and so I called my doctor That said you're going to have to wait until you get back so we can actually come in and screen you and see what's going on. So I kind of gritted my teeth through that mission, came back, went to see the doctor. Um, They thought I had Lyme's disease, so they they took some blood to see uh, and run and test that. turns out it wasn't that. And uh, after doing uh, an X-ray and an MRI, they discovered that what had happened was when I ran the Broad Street Run, it herniated a disc in my lower back between my L5 and S1 vertebrae that started putting pressure on my sciatic nerve. So that's the pain that I was feeling. So he was like, this is very common for people who are old or or who are active all the time, it just happens. So uh, he prescribed six to eight weeks of physical therapy and he said, we'll work on that and then hopefully you'll get better after that. Gave me some anti-inflammatory medication and uh, I went to, to eight weeks of, of PT and that didn't take away the pain. So then we did another six weeks of PT and that didn't take away the pain. And then we did some injections in my lower back and that didn't take away the pain. And then I went to go see a chiropractor and that didn't take away the pain and then I got another series of injections and actually when that happened, one time the the needle accidentally clipped the nerve and it ended up firing and I was in the worst pain that I've ever been in my life for two solid days. Um, I went to see two more chiropractors. I went uh, to an acupuncturist even. I was trying anything to alleviate the pain and eventually I found myself sitting across the table from the top neurosurgeon at Penn Medicine and he said, you know what, looking at your latest MRI, I can go in, that, in there and shave the disc down, And but the way that your specific situation is, I don't really see it helping you at all. In fact, you could come out in more pain at the end of the surgery. Dot, 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 here I am about 12 years later, and I've spent every day since the initial part of this story that I told you in some form of pain. Now, God has um, alleviated that at times and has come back at times, but Generally, every single day since that time in 2009, I have been in some sort of pain. I have been in a very real and unexpected season of suffering. My suffering has, of course, been in the physical realm with my chronic pain, but many others go through suffering of a different kind. Financial hard times, losing a job, divorce, end of a dream that you've been working for toward for a long time, the ending of a relationship, a friendship, or a romance, the loss of a loved one, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a pandemic that has affected all of us. Some of you have gone through so many horrific things over the last 18 months, I can't even imagine, and I'm not going to say just because I've suffered, I get what you're going through. Suffering is different for all different types of people. It, all, it comes in all different types of shapes and sizes, but what I've discovered in my times of suffering is that it, it is inevitable we will all suffer in some form or fashion, and it's also polarizing, meaning that it will generally lead us away from the status quo of our everyday lives and toward one of two places. One, towards bitterness and anger and resentment of God for what he has quote-unquote done to us. You ever been there? God, what are you doing to me? Or toward a deeper understanding of Christ's sufferings, growth, and union with God most of the time. Very rarely does a person choose indifference when thrown into the fire of suffering. There's an old saying that goes like this, the same sun that melts wax also hardens clay and we can respond in two different ways when the sun has a tendency to beat down hard on our lives so let's look at a a biblical example of suffering and how its account on the topic can lead us to respond so we're going to look at 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 daniel chapter 3 this is a famous story from the old testament the story of the fiery furnace okay so, let me give you a little context of what's happening here. We're going to kind of talk and read through a few verses in Daniel chapter 3 verses 14 through 25, okay? There are these three Jewish exiles living in Babylon under the rule of this mean king called King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king makes this at one point makes this enormous like golden statue that probably represented a, a combination of uh, the king himself and the fact that Babylon was a religiously pluralistic society. So, in in fact, earlier in the chapter in Daniel 3, verse 6, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar demands that every person in the kingdom bow down to this image, this golden statue, and he says, Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a fiery furnace. Okay? A little bit different than America, right? Okay? So, In this kingdom, nearly everyone complied with with the king's order to bow down and worship this golden idol, except for these three Jewish men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew that to obey the king would be a violation of their faith in the God of Israel, who revealed himself not as a god, but as the God of the entire universe. So they refused to bow down to this idol. And very swiftly afterward, they are threatened with a painful death if they did not obey. So let's look at verses uh, 14 and 15 real quick. Okay, this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you... Do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And get this, this is what he says. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? A little bit arrogant. A little bit arrogant. Um, So these three men, these three Jewish exiles, represent all people who suddenly find a painful affliction falling on them, unlooked for and through no fault of their own. They're doing the right thing, and they're threatened with this. So how do they respond? Let's look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king... That we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, what's going on here? These men are both confident in God and also humble at the same time. They say, he will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your idol. So the question is, when I was a baby Christian, I read this for the first time, the question that inevitably kind of came to my mind when I was reading this, and you think critically about this, it was like, if they're confident in God, and they know God is going to rescue them, why would they even admit to the possibility of not being delivered by him? And when you follow that line of thought, it leads you to this conclusion. Because their confidence was actually in God, not in their limited, finite understanding of what they thought God would do. They knew God was under no obligation to operate according to their limited, narrow wisdom. Their trust was in God Himself, not in some agenda that they wanted God to promote. They were saying, We will serve Him whether He conforms to our wisdom or not so let's apply this personally if I say God I know you will answer this prayer because I see that it's good and it lines up with scripture and I know that you're going to answer this prayer God in fact you can't not answer this prayer what am I saying when I say that my confidence is not really in God's wisdom it's in my own right I've, heard, I've been in campus ministry for 22 years, working with college students, and I've heard a lot of people communicate things like this. You know, I trusted God, and I prayed so hard for fill-in-the-blank, whatever that is, but he never gave it to me. God let me down. He doesn't care about me, and he doesn't listen to my prayers. But statements like that communicate... That their deepest faith and hope was actually set on an agenda they had set for their lives. And God was just a means they were using to get to that end. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted in God. Not God plus their own plan. Their greatest joy was to honor the Lord, not to use him... To get what they wanted. We'll talk more about this in a minute. So what happens in the story? So when the king gets his kind of defiant response from these three Jewish men, he gets so angry that he has the furnace execution chamber fueled seven times hotter than normal. That's how mad he is, okay? Uh, the three men are tied up, and they're tossed into the fire, and the fire is so hot that the heat Kills the soldiers who throw the men in. That's how hot it is, okay? Uh, And then the king looks into the fiery furnace, and he's shocked at what he sees. Look at verses uh, 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered him and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This feels like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Doesn't this feel bizarre? This is really, really strange. Um, if you're feeling like this is one of those fairy tales that comes out of the Old Testament that I don't get, so I'm going to ignore it. Okay. Let's not do that, all right? Instead of seeing three bodies writhing around in agony in the flames, the king sees four figures walking about calmly in the fire, unbound and completely unharmed. And it's the fourth person who catches his attention because he looks like a superhero of some kind. This is clearly the reason the other three guys aren't dead. The fourth man walks beside them. Now, if you were to study this piece of scripture and do some commentary reading, commentators agree that you'll you'll learn that this son of the gods is in fact the son of God, Jesus Christ. Right here in the Old Testament. He's not born yet, but he's here walking beside them. The fiery divine friend is a vivid commentary on Isaiah 43 when it says, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames shall not set you ablaze. Do not be afraid, for I will be with you. Now let's pause here for a second. Let's not look at this as a story reading back from 2021 backward. Let's look at ourselves for a second and say, Do you see it? Do you see the infinite lengths to which which he went to be with us? Not just these three Jewish men, but us. When we remember, when we pause and remember that Jesus had been living in unimaginable glory and bliss for all eternity past, we realize that his entire life on this planet was... For him, like walking in a furnace. Jesus' life, when you read about it in the Gospels, all of his life was, was under stress. He was often uh, attacked by people seeking to kill him. He was constantly misunderstood. He was rejected at the end by all of his friends and family and even his God. And on the cross, as he died, he truly entered our furnace. He was condemned unjustly to a painful death, and he went through it all by himself. Remember on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away from him in that moment. The fire of God's wrath burned Jesus to the core and blazed unchecked over him. He was entirely alone. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was suffering not only with us, but for us. Jesus plunged into the fire for you when he went to the cross. For you, personally, for you. And if you remember that he was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you can begin to sense him in your smaller furnaces with you. So let me tell you some lessons that I've learned in my suffering over these last 12 years. It's kind of what I was just saying right now. God is with us in the fires of life. When it seems like he's not present, it just seems that way. He is with us. He knows what it's like to live through the miseries of this world. God himself has suffered in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he understands. He is near. He is available to be depended upon within the hardship of life. Number two. And this is really important for for us to remember. In our trials and sufferings, we are not being punished. Now... Hear me clearly on this. Are there consequences to bad decisions? Yes, of course there are. There are consequences to bad decisions. But as Christians, we do not believe that if we do good, we'll get good. Or if we do bad, we'll get bad. That's called karma. We don't believe in that. We are saved by Jesus being thrown into the ultimate furnace that we deserve as sinners, but if we believe that God saves only those who live a very good life, when suffering hits, you will either hate God or you will hate yourself. You'll say things like, you know, I live a good life. I've been pretty good. I'm better than my neighbors. I'm better than my, my siblings. I'm better than my parents. I'm better than all those people at work. God has done me wrong. I deserve better than this. What is that? What is that? Do? That's saying, I've done good, therefore I deserve good. That's transactional. That's like mechanical. That's not the way that grace works. Now, just saying that's kind of out there what people do, let me just say I am 100% guilty of this. I do this all the time. With my chronic pain, I have said things like literally pray this out loud, okay? Vulnerable time. Lord, I'm serving you as a full-time missionary. I literally said this. You owe me. You owe me. Does God owe me anything? God owes me wrath. That's it. So, Let's have a proper perspective about what the truth of Scripture actually teaches, especially when the fires of suffering come around. So you could say, you can either hate God or you can hate yourself because you could say stuff like, you know, I must have done something wrong. I did something bad, therefore God is punishing me. I'm the loser here. We hate ourselves. Either way leads you into despair. Look at me. A heart forgetting the gospel will be torn between anger and guilt going into the fire of suffering without the gospel which is what I explained earlier about Jesus suffering for us going into the fire of suffering without the gospel is the most dangerous thing anyone can do you will be mad at God you will be mad at yourself or you'll be mad at both um, right about at the height of my suffering I was in a pretty bad spot, and um, I was also clear, uh, like, honesty. I was on opioids as well, which was awful. It was ruining my life to try to deal with the pain. I read this, God, uh, this book called um, That God Led to Me, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. And in this, the Lord really used this book in my life. Uh, Keller writes out this, like, prayer at one point that I wanted to read to you because I felt like it was so helpful to me. And it says this, uh, in suffering, this is my furnace. I am not being punished for my sins because Jesus was thrown into that ultimate fire for me. And so if he went through the greatest fire steadfastly for me, I can go through this smaller furnace steadfastly for him. And I also know that it means that if I trust in him, this furnace will only make me better. That was beautiful. That was really helpful for me. Third, another thing that I've learned, ironically, it's this idea of running a race. A race is what kind of ruined me, but it was really helpful in learning a little bit more. Um, Running a race. I realize that I've spent pretty much my entire life as a good Western American desiring to cross the finish line of suffering or trials, or, or whatever I go through, regardless of what they were or are. So I've asked questions like this. See if you can relate. And this is really hard right now. When's this going to be over? Uh, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? When will this trial come to an end? I'm so sick of the suffering, and I realize that I've focused most of my life on crossing the tape of the finish line. When's it going to end? But the reality that I need to face with my pain specifically is that there might not be a finish line in this. So, what good is there in constantly focusing on when it'll be done when it may never end? And in that moment, I kind of came to this epiphany and I realized you know what? I shouldn't spend my life looking for the finish line of various trials. When's it, when am I going to cross the tape? I should look not to the end, but to the side. And to the side, there I will see Jesus running alongside me in this difficult race, with understanding in his eyes throughout every single stride. And when I kind of came to this epiphany, I decided to mirror Tim Keller and write a prayer of my own. And so this is what I wrote. Lord, I pray that I'll be so enamored with you that I won't even dwell on the finish line, wondering when my suffering will be over. You understand everything I'm going through, and if the day ever comes when I finally do cross that finish line of this trial, I really won't even care that much that the race is over because I'll still be looking to the side, seeing you, Lord Jesus, running with me. See, walking in the suffering is more valuable than you might think. Our nature especially as Americans, is to constantly bring life back to a state of comfort. We've been trained from birth to eliminate suffering from every part of our lives. Think about it. When you're hungry, you want to get food immediately. When you're hot, you want to turn on the air conditioning. When you're uncomfortable in what you're wearing, you want to change your clothes. If you have a headache, you take Advil or Tylenol. And it's, it's everything all the time. And while those things that I just mentioned are not necessarily bad, In and of themselves, what they do is they hardwire our lives to immediately flee when any kind of suffering comes around. We can't put up with it for any significant amount of time because we've been trained to constantly purge it from our lives. But as we walk with God in the suffering, it's just that. It's a walk. Walking consists of steady, repeated actions you can keep up in a sustained way for a long period of time. To walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. Knowing and understanding this in our hearts will help us to alleviate the temptation to constantly flee from pain and suffering. Fifth, and finally, what I've learned. Scripture calls followers of God to do several things. We're called in Scripture to walk, to grieve, to weep, to trust, to pray, to rejoice, to think, to thank, to love, and to hope. We are asked to believe in something we may not be able to see or even understand at times. I have certainly asked the question in my history God, what in the world are you doing? You ever been there? What in the world are you doing? I don't understand. But as I've walked through this, I've seen some of the layers peeled back in my faith that my suffering, while difficult and painful, is also beautiful and necessary. A gift, even. See, I've treated God for most of my Christian life as a cosmic vending machine. I put in the dollar bills of Bible reading and prayer and evangelism and church attendance and even vocational choices. Like, I've chosen to be a poor missionary. Um, And I've expected back what I label as blessings. From God. But when it didn't turn out that way, it didn't work out that way, I discovered in time that I wanted God for what He could give me, not for God Himself. See, He wants an authentic relationship with me so much that He's willing to allow me to suffer. That's how much God loves me. He loves me so much that he simply won't leave me alone. Now, if you think this is kind of bizarre or weird that God would do stuff like that, how many parents do we have in the room? Lift your hands if you're a parent. Okay. If you're a parent, you understand that you never just let your kids do whatever they want to do, right? That's called bad parenting, all right? You never let your kids do whatever they want to do. Like if it were up to my kids, they would eat candy all day, every day, and watch screen time all the time, and when they'd find glass in the street, they'd shove it up their nose because they thought it would be fun and maybe turn them into a unicorn, okay? So I, I, you get involved as a parent because you care about your kids. You love them. You love them enough to disrupt their lives and the course of action that they're taking. Why? Because we as parents know that sometimes the worst thing that could happen to them would be getting exactly what they want. And it's the same thing for us. Sometimes the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be getting exactly what you want. I'm learning to love the thing I wish had never happened to me. Uh, Last week, not this past week, but the week before, I was doing an interview for this podcast and I met this woman named Vanitha Reisner. And Venita is a modern day job. Uh, She's in a wheelchair. Uh, She got polio as an infant because of a doctor's error. And had 21 surgeries to help fix her uh, quadriplegic nature. By the time she was three, 21 surgeries. She lived most of her life in a hospital up through her young years, elementary school years. Became a Christian at the age of 16. And um, eventually got married. And uh, in the process of having kids for the first few years of her marriage, she went through six miscarriages eventually had two daughters and one son, and in that process found out that her husband was cheating on her. Uh, They worked on it to try to save the marriage. They had a son who was born with a heart defect, and so he had, um, in utero, had a a surgery to try to repair his heart. He was born okay, and he was on the special medicine for the first three months of his life. He was getting better, getting better, and so they took him back for his three-month checkup. And their regular doctor wasn't there. There was a, a different doctor. And the different doctor said, he's doing well. He doesn't need to be on this medicine at all. Three days later, her son died. Um, a couple years after that, she, would, she was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which basically means the energy that you have in your body is replenished by food and exercise. Basically, the energy that's in her body because she had polio when she was younger is like money in a bank that will continually decrease. It will continually go down. And one day, she will not be able to feed herself. It was at this point in time that her husband decided to confess to her a second affair that he was having with a woman in a different city. And he left her as a single mom. Um, Venitha loves Jesus. She loves Jesus, and I talked to her for uh, several hours asking her some very interesting and clarifying questions that I wanted her to unpack for me because I did not understand how a sufferer could love Jesus that much, and at one point, she quoted and said something like this. This is on her blog that I found a little bit later on, but we talked about it. She said, when does the dandelion, a flower, when does the dandelion do its most important work When it's dying, when the fragile seeds are blown away by the wind, when it has surrendered itself and is sowing seeds of new life, and the stronger the wind blows, the farther the seeds will go, to places that the lone flower could have never gone itself. I told her at the end of our time, Vinita, you're my hero. May I walk with Jesus a fraction of the way that you do. Several years ago, GQ magazine did an interview with Stephen Colbert before he took over The Late Show for David Letterman. They did a a bit of a deep dive on his life. When Stephen Colbert was 10 years old, his father and two of his brothers closest in age to him were killed simultaneously in a plane crash. And when they asked him about this, this is what he said. He said, I've accepted my suffering. Acceptance is not defeat. Acceptance is just awareness. In fact, I've learned to love it. I've learned to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. And then he referenced a letter written by J.R.R. Tolkien and said this, what punishments of God are not gifts? Then he said, it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. And I can hold both of these ideas in my head. The same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. I don't like the suffering. I'm grateful for the suffering. Two ideas, one tension, that we're called to live with as we walk with God. Minute by minute hour by hour, day by day, and if he graces me year by year. And for me, the clock keeps on ticking. What about you? Let me pray.